This is a moving biography podcast, bringing together different perspectives to question disciplinary assumptions and decenter life writing. It is a collaboration between Laucha at the Orient Institute Beirut, the American University of Beirut and the Global Decenter, generously funded by the Volkswagen Foundation. Hello, so I'm Sonia Meicher Atasi and I'm very happy to have Sarah Saban here with me. Sarah will talk about her research today. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the American University of Beirut. She also did her MA here at AUB in Anthropology and she did an MST in Islamic Art and Archaeology at the University of Oxford. And she participated last summer in the summer school moving biography, uh, which we organized with the generous support of the Volkswagen uh, Foundation here at, at AUB and uh, OEB, the Orient Institute, Beirut. Sarah, it's a great pleasure to have you here and to have this conversation with you. Let me just say a few more things about Sarah's research before we give the floor to her. So her PhD is on the history of arts and crafts in late Ottoman Beirut. But today, actually, we'll talk about a later period. So the time period that follows the research she's doing for her PhD. So we'll talk about the title of this other project is Crafting the Lebanese Nation under the French Mandate, Evelyn Bustros as a patron of the arts and crafts. To begin with, Sarah, please tell us who is Evelyn Bustros and how did you learn about her? Thank you very much, Sonia. I'm delighted to be having this conversation with you. So Evelyn Twaini Bustros is a distinguished, influential and cosmopolitan figure whose long life spanned the late Ottoman times. She was born in 1878, lived through the French mandate. She led in the March for Independence and lived on in the modern Lebanese state. And she passed away in 1971. So it's a very rich life she had. She's the scionist of the Greek Orthodox aristocracy in Beirut, um, a descendant of the Twainies and the Sursos, and she married into the Bustroses, uh, Gabriel Bustros, namely. And that obviously equipped her to be in positions of power. Furthermore, her cultural, artistic, and political interests and activities stretched from the local scene to the global one. She is commonly celebrated as a Francophone writer a leading Arab feminist and a Lebanese nationalist, and she mingled with powerful and influential figures, as uh, one can see through the archives. But her key role as the patron of the arts and crafts has only been mentioned en passant, like an afterthought. So something she has done and had to be mentioned, but with no further analysis or importance given to it. So in fact, I only discovered that entanglement of Evelyn's biography with material culture in her personal archives, which were deposited at the AUB's archives and special collections in 2015. The more I try to re, the more I have tried to reconstruct that side of her life, um, the more I have come to learn about the formation of Lebanese heritage, and 
That's why uh, the research I'm conducting uh, has so far been called uh, the Lebanese nation, the French mandate and uh, the arts and crafts. So that's how it has come together. But just to be clear, I, fo I have focused so far on the 1930s mainly. And so there are many other things in her life that I still cannot tell you about, but uh, which the archival collection is very rich with. Mm -hmm. I'd love to learn more about your field research and in particular the archives you worked with. Can you tell us more about the surprises, the accidental discoveries you encountered in these archives? Also, I had never heard about Evelyn Bustros before, so how did you come across her? Did you know about her before? Were you looking for information about her or how did you learn about her? I learned about her because um, due to an, of an, because of an assignment in a course I was taking as a PhD student. I knew nothing about her. I didn't know of her existence. And frankly, I did not know much about Lebanese history. So in that way, I have learned about Lebanese history via my discovery and learning the history of Evelyn. So she takes on like big dimensions in my life. <laughs> So basically, I was taking a course in advanced methodology in the history department. And the exercise to train us to become good historians was to go to the AUB archives, find these boxes, choose one and start from the finding aid in order to make our selections and then um, learn more as we go into the, the actual archives. And by the end of the course, tell a story based on this, on the, the evidences we find. So Evelyn Bustros's archives were deposited there, let's say, three, four years before that. And I was the only Francophone in the class. She sounded, she sounded very interesting. And the finding aid mentioned arts and crafts and artisanat. And for someone who comes from a training in Islamic art history and had her own frustrations and takes on the field of Islamic art history, the concept, and having been having read a lot about the critical turn in art history, Islamic art history, I was very curious to see what it is that I can learn about material culture from arts, craft, artisanal, and these archives of the woman I don't know, but who seems really important just by, by the, the way she's presented. So I, I came across her by, by accident, so to speak. And the AUB archives since then were my point of departure, both physically, materially, and conceptually. In fact, the source material is exceedingly rich in the quantity and the variety of documents. So it's an excellent example um, to teach history and students who are coming into history via the, these archives and the, the unimagined things one could find among the belongings of a person. So I'll share some snippets because I think it's good to, to share what sort of items one can find. In her personal diaries, Evelyn wrote poems. She took notes for her research or personal interests so that one find quote, finds quotes or some books she actually wanted to read, such as Marcel Raymond, Ernest Renan, Roger Bacon, Anatole France, and even the Bible. There are also drafts um, for letters she addressed to her friends and other prominent figures. 
and that gives you insight on the happening in one's life. So whereas in a couple of notebooks she personally transformed into indexes, she actually wrote comments and entries on various historical figures for what seems to be a research on Arab and Islamic history. And these apparently helped in the preparation of one of her books, La Main d'Allah. Others were things that she never finished. We all have a certain interest, something that you want to look into, but you never actually do, right? And so this is uh, very interesting in these archives, a personal diary, a note from here, a note from there. So it's intimate as well. And there are many letters from personal and friendly correspondences to official ones addressed to very influential and powerful figures of the time. Here we're talking about Nicholas II, Emperor of Russia, General Gouraud, Amir Shakib Arslan, Father Shamoussi, Louis Massignon. And there is also a group of legal documents to give a sense of the variety. These included the Twaini Waqf, inheritance, court cases, the genealogies and family trees that represent her family legacy. In addition, there are also non-personal things, and these include some ephemera from restaurant menus in Lebanon, to le livre d'adresse de madame from her time in Paris, which we I don't know much about yet. It preceded her coming to back to Lebanon in the 1930s. Telegraphs, postcards, etc. And there are also speeches she had made or official letters she had written to address women issues, um, child labor, and the state of local craftsmanship. Another archive uh, I must uh, say I, I worked on was the digitized archives of Lorient Le Jour. And that's because although it's a secondary source, it's a crucial one for, for the work I'm doing because it helped me map more of the names that belong to Evelyn's network to be able to for, yani, more more uh, to know also what was happening as she was doing her, her endeavors and to know about the local and international events that she participated in as the head of the Renaissance Feminine, as the head of, I hope we, we talk about this, the Siribon, etc. And these varied from local costume parties at the Restaurant Francais to the colonial and exhibitions and the world exhibitions in France and the States, etc. And in fact, I didn't know what I was getting myself involved in. So not knowing much about Lebanese history, um, not knowing much about the archival scene in Lebanon, the current one, um, I was discovering. And I remember being very intrigued by, by these uh, different ways of naming and finding um, the arts and crafts. And as such, I learned about how to study or what it means, how to study arts and crafts on the one hand and what it takes for a person and a group of people to get interested into the arts and crafts, to invest in them. How do you invest in them? What does it require? What were the conditions that allowed this to happen? Obviously her position of power was very important, but she also, as a woman, as someone who traveled to Egypt, to France, uh, where she lived longer periods than in other places, what does it mean for her to be interested in that? to invest and to mobilize resources of the nation and for the nation to do that. I want to end on a note that is more, that follows on from a happy discovery of the unsuspected mm -hmm. patron of arts and crafts hidden in the archival boxes to the frustration of not being able to locate the actual material culture in question. 
So I have so much evidence saying that um, Evelyn worked with other people, of course. It was not a one-woman project, be it of costumes that she collected, of costumes that she had made of all sorts of objects, from sandals to other um, artifacts uh, that she either made or collected. And so far, I have not found a direct connection between Evelyn and such material. So it has been very frustrating because part of material culture, you want to know it's there, but you also would like to have access to it and know which yeah, one, right. what it is, right? So I am there now and I'm trying to make sense of not finding the material, but at the same time, I'm uh, positive and hopeful because I've been introduced to some people that were very excited about this subject and who have been trying to put me in touch with some people that could know more about Evelyn, the work of women in terms of uh, arts and crafts and the artisanal. And I think somehow all of this pushes us to think more about the post-colonial nation-state, the role of the elite, and material culture in terms of what makes the archive, where we can find it, how to know that it's there, mm -hmm. and eventually to have access to it. I guess this makes us think about all these matters. Now it's really fascinating. I loved what you said about telling a story. So part of your assignment was to tell a, st mm. a story. So matters in the study of or in the writing of history. And it seems to me that your research on Evelyn is actually is more a micro history than a biography. So her life and work are not really, they are important, <laughs> but really they serve, her life serves as a lens through which you study the early years of nation building in Lebanon. Can you tell us more about your approach? Also share some insights that you gained through studying Evelyn's life and work about her time, how did that allow you to get a better picture, or you also use the word intimate, a more intimate picture maybe, about of her time? That was a very interesting, good question, <laughs> thank you. Um, the exercise of learning about a, arts and crafts And how does one learn about material culture? Some, somewhere you need a human agent or human agency, so to speak. And my interest in, in the arts and crafts, I translate it into an interest of material, in material culture. I am interested, I, I look at it as material culture. And as such, I try to ground it, contextualize it, situate it, right? And as such, historicize it by looking at how did it come to life? Who made it come to life? What were the conditions that allowed this to happen? And in terms of conditions, we're talking economic, social, but also very much political. And we were in the, uh, at the time of the French mandate. And so it was very interesting to be able actually to balance and to respect the person and as much as I wanted from that person. But because it's through her that she, she opened my eyes, so to speak, on the importance of arts and crafts, it's, it very much is important for me to understand why it mattered to her and how she did it. And as such, yes, there is this intertwining between the person and the biography of that person 
And as I think was one of the main questions that we all addressed in the moving biography summer school was what is it that they want? Well, we what is it that we want from this biography, right? Because there's the researcher that is looking at the life of someone else. So what is it that we want from this biography? How are we learning about it? Where are we taking it? Because there's the whole selectivity process. And so as much as I can as a researcher and a historian, I'm trying to balance between both. It's also telling that we don't know much about this aspect of Evelyn's life. And somehow I try to problematize it because it's as I learn more about Evelyn that I learn more about material culture, heritage making, Lebanon and vice versa. And so I ask, what is what does it mean that this kind of work by a woman and uh, propelled by a woman and the group of women that worked with her and the material culture? What does it mean for these to be omitted from any serious attempt at examination, but also where do we find these archives? It's very easy now to look to, to go to places and you find artisana. And and it's not fixed artisana, different models, things that are changing. And I'm not saying it, it was created then and it stopped. But I think there is something very important at the time it was created and conceptualized. And as such, the biography, between biography, microhistory, and moving biography, I think there's a very dynamic relationship based on what one is trying to find and the methodology they are trying to pursue. But thinking more about it, my primary interest is in the arts and crafts. Otherwise, maybe I would not have noticed that in the archival mm-hmm. boxes, right? There are so many things one can be attracted to. And, and then my approach to these crafts, how I want to, how I try to understand them. And following Evelyn, so to speak, I, I looked at some of the things she did. And here I want to share an example, which is one of the first items I took note of in the archives, although the, the actual album is also found online. And that album is the one of Lebanese and Syrian costumes that was published around 1935. It's a collaborative work between Evelyn and the renowned French painter and artist, art critic, Georges Cyr. So basically what I gathered, because again, you have the product, but you want the story behind this actual Mm -hmm. object. So in 1934, just before Evelyn joined the Renaissance Feminine Association, of which she became the president for a long time, she had embarked on a field trip across Lebanon, Syria and Palestine to collect traditional costumes. And somewhere, I can't remember where I read that, she, she speaks of winds of change, right? Something was happening and there was this need to document and preserve things before they disappear without us knowing them. And I think eventually these items served as prototypes for Sears 25 watercolor typologies that are published in this album with Bustos. And with time, I discovered that this album was translated into English and into Arabic. So it's also really interesting the kind of audiences they have in mind. And Trying to make sense of this album, which frankly, I don't know how accurate or realistic it is. And I think I still haven't wrapped my head around what that actually means. But somewhere there's, except uh, I dare say the orientalizing or the self-orientalizing aspect and all of this. We also note, and that's important, I think, an ethnographic attempt coupled with an artistic technique that Georges Cyr brought into it, and a will to document and preserve, right? Maybe that's part of nation building. You, yeah. you want to have a past, you want to create a past. 
Um, and interestingly enough, with Evelyn's example as such, uh, I think these must be analyzed alongside the entertainment of the elite because um, these costumes also featured in the dancing as cos and costume parties that she organized uh, with the Renaissance Feminine and other associations. Um, later on, this same album found its way to the New York World Exhibition in 1939. Among other materials that Charles Quirum, Lebanese writer and friend of uh, Evelyn, who served as the general commissioner of the Lebanese pavilion, took with him. And there, are, there is a correspondence between him and Evelyn about this, and I think also with other friends who made it to, to the exhibition while Evelyn stayed back in Beirut, deploring the album's unmarket, unmarketability in New York. So people were not buying it. And she had invested her own money to make this happen, but then she didn't get any returns on it. So it's really interesting also as a node in that history to look at something that you invested in and you mobilize different aspects of the network and then it doesn't work out. So I guess Kamen had telling in the history of nation building. Mm. It's also fascinating to learn that actually she traveled throughout the region to collect these costumes. Yes. So the album has, as you said earlier, there are lots of stories behind this album, right? The stories also of her encounters with people when she traveled, you said, Palestine, Stein, Syria, Syria, Iraq. I'm not sure about Iraq. I see. But these are the ones. It's also interesting because there are different periods. It goes through different periods, right? Eventually, you start seeing the mandate map mm -hmm. and the French colonial map and the way she is seeing mm. things or making them happen. But I very much agree with you because if you look at the album, and again, some of most of the drawings, you're wondering, what, what is that? Mm. If you see the representation, who is represented in Beirut, there's only one image as far as I remember. It's an image of Kurdish porters at the, at the, at the port. And that's mm -hmm. how Beirut is represented via other villages or rural places in, in the Syrian hinterland and across yeah. Lebanon. Um, but then it's when you know what happened behind that, that she actually went to collect these, that gives a more nuanced understanding mm -hmm. and to see perhaps the influence of Georges Cyr on it and how a collaboration can take shape. Because perhaps we can talk more in, 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 a, in a bit about what other items came out of her interest in these costumes and perhaps where did she show them and those that she collected uh, in, in her trip. Sure, I'd also love to hear about Siriban. So you told yeah. me in another conversation <laughs> right. about this... Uh, boutique shop that yeah. she opened, right? Right. She did open that boutique shop. And I think it's the first one of its kind in terms of, uh, of course, you had, let me tell you how I started understanding it, like the development of my understanding so that it makes sense. So Siriban obviously comes from Syrie and Liban. Mm -hmm. So she got them together to speak of the arts and crafts. And again, that gives us a layer of understanding of how identities develop across time. Uh, and maybe here it's important to mention that uh, at the beginning, the trend and the role of the international exhibitions that originated in the, around the middle of the 19th century and how they sketched the future, future parameters of national identity. And they created, along with the later colonial exhibitions, new realities via material representations. So what does the Lebanese pavilion look like? What are you exhibiting there, what does it look like? And all of these helping to 
build that imaginary community or yeah. identity. Um, and I guess here uh, another concept of, I've been uh, thinking about to make sense of is the, the colonial citizen or colonial citizenship. Because I think it might be very interesting to develop an understanding of it in relation to material culture and how you represent using material culture, all these aspects. For example, it's worth noting here that less than a year after the declaration of Greater Lebanon by General Gourou, the first Beirut Fair was organized under the High Commissioner's patronage. So it was what the colonial powers did and how they established their relation with, their, with the mandated territories and how they carved a space for these nation-states and the big map of the world. And as such, in the famous and periodical Le Monde Colonial Illustré, the colonial world illustrated, I think that relationship or the that can be that was articulated in the French colonial discourse on the fate of the annexed territories was epitomized in the opening sentence of an article in 1929, and I quote, Syria is essentially a country made for tourism, right? It's when the, it echoes the British's understanding of Egypt as an agricultural mm. land. And as such, when we look at that heritage project and what Evelyn, other women, and we're doing, you cannot take it at face value. Things are much more complicated, much more dynamic. And I think I have a bit of a difficult task in terms of trying to be as accurate as possible in interpreting and making sense of these endeavors. So Siribon, unfortunately, I know very little about. And most of what I know was gathered in periodicals, uh, even advertisement. I think at a point they were advertising for a director of some sort, right? So I knew it opened mm. and I knew they're recruiting. But what I've gathered so far is by the summer of 1936, it had opened a stall in, uh, next to, uh, in downtown at the Place de l'Etoile. And it sold damascene classwork, silk items and other textiles, embroideries woven with gold thread, lame sandals, among other products gathered from the region. The boutique prided itself on only trading in local products and created new designs to revive the local weaving trade, for example. But in fact, the most eye-catching what was most eye-catching in the shop were Bustos's colorful and sumptuously dressed Syrian dolls, which were regarded as miniature custodians of the traditional costumes. And that's where perhaps her trip, her field trip across Lebanon, mm -hmm. Syria and Palestine helped in making and having the actual model and then just making the little mini models for the dolls. And through this endeavor, a large network was mobilized across Syria and Lebanon, and this included women, both urban elite and rural workers, who produced dresses for dolls from real models. And there is even the bishop in Hummus who had his share of work with these little costumes. Mm. And these dolls actually exist. Here you have some examples of these dolls. I think the earliest picture I have dates mm. from the 60s. So we don't know exactly how they originally looked like. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to 
talk to people about these and I'm actually grateful for the for the pictures you shared with me of mm. uh, some of the dolls that uh, your father from his time in Lebanon has brought with him back to Germany in the 70s early 70s exactly yes, just so now was a war mm. exactly mm. and so I have a picture in one of the magazines from the 60s and mm. now we have the early 70s and from the artisanat and in in fact I have to mention here that I made a couple of trips to Zoo Mkail mm. with the art historian Jessica Gershulz who's also working oh, yes. on on textiles at a, at a bit of a later period and we met a, a woman artisan and when I was telling her about these dolls she actually got me some of the dolls because she worked oh, wow. with the artisana mm-hmm. and she mm-hmm. showed me the prototype of the 90s mm-hmm. now I'm trying to reconstruct what these dolls looked like and I think visually when you look at something it will tell you things that words or ideas or a text never told you of course you will say it in your own words from the 21st century from that perspective but there are also things that perhaps you would not have noticed in terms of the material the designs mm. what were the dolls like so apparently they could have been uh, in, in done in very different ways and they were probably imported I was thinking about it yesterday I couldn't find the reference but I might have read that they were imported from Actually, like from China, I'm not sure, but I don't know Mm -hmm. if I I read it for some of the more recent, Mm -hmm. probably more recent ones, but they were like they were most likely imported and as dolls. And it's also worth mentioning that it was not like her her own creation. These this practice already existed, whether in Istanbul or Mm -hmm. in Europe. But of course, it's interesting to see how this takes shape in in this place and time. One of the roles that this Cereban did beyond activating the local market for the arts and crafts was the role of representing the nation and as such the nation in the making as it emerged with the efforts of all these people. For example, for some contemporary commentators, Cereban represented, and I quote, the most original and most complete synthesis, end of quote, of the Syro-Libanese arts and crafts. And I think This came after they felt that the colonial powers were not representing them properly. They should have done a better job. So they took on this uh, as as their responsibility Mm -hmm. uh, as Lebanese citizens. And here, another remark perhaps about how material culture can starkly show us certain ideological, conceptual and nationalist developments as well as other changes that I'm I'm still exploring. So on the one hand, uh, we go from Siriban to l'artisan or l'artisanat libanais. And then Evelyn's Syrian dolls in the mid-1930s become the Lebanese dolls in the end of the same decade. So I think it's it really gives us insight onto things that otherwise would not be that easy to depict or dwell on. Yeah, that's really interesting. This renaming also in terms of carving out uh, new identities. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. And maybe another remark, because I think it's important, the, this preservation of the traditional crafts was very much associated with the salvaging of village life Mm-hmm. as, quote, the authentic Lebanese life in a rapidly modernizing world, in the sense that capitalism, industrializations, they were not new, they had started uh, well into the 19th century, but there was a the time where things were perhaps accelerating. But although things perhaps were disappearing, we know that the arts and crafts economy was dwindling, but it's important to take note as well of what was being created Right. So it did not just come naturally. Mm. That 
idea of a of a village life of of the authentic Lebanese of the rural side as idealized romanticized as something fixed ideal and almost non-existing is also not accurate but it was part of the process of creating modern nation states and I think that's important of what 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 things are pushed away what things are still exist but you don't see them as contemporary to you you see them as a living past and i think it's important to pay attention to to this and in terms of creating different temporalities between the unchanging authentic rural life and then the modernizing westernizing urban center and what uh, what Siri bonded i guess or what it tried to do is play uh, a network between these so yeah yeah it's fascinating So now I have a lot of more questions, <laughs> but let me maybe just ask one last question. The arts and crafts, so different also from high or fine art, which is associated more closely with man. It seems that the arts and crafts leave some space for women. As much as the arts and crafts crafted the nation, as you say, They also crafted gender. Can you tell us more about the social relations between men and women, but also among women from which the arts and crafts emerged? Um, this is something I've been really thinking about, and particularly because Evelyn has so much been studied and presented as a leading feminist. And in fact, one of the things I've been thinking about, because I, I think somewhere across this crazy research, remember that she and Huda Sharawi met. Mm -hmm. or and then you discover that Huda Sharawi was also working with the crafts in Egypt when Evelyn was doing that in, in Lebanon. And so there's certainly something to it. And not only has the crafts have the crafts and arts and crafts been used as colonial categories, so to speak. The women have also, it's been more of a women's work. Why and how, I don't have any easy answers because it's really something I've been scratching my head to understand how does this happen, right? But thinking about this, I can share one anecdote that when you're in, in you're just, you open the boxes and you're actually reading through the material to, to feel, to have a feeling of Evelyn. And, and I remember reading a letter And it's a really funny anecdote. So basically, the Renaissance women, the women of the Renaissance society, traveled to the Syrian hinterland. And they met artisan, craftsmen, to tell them that they are organizing this exhibition in the city and to collaborate with them so that they can produce whatever they were producing and so that they can take them to the city and sell them there. And Evelyn, I think it was Evelyn who reflected on the puzzled and perplexed look on these men's faces and what do these women want with us that's how she represented it in her letter mm. and I thought that's really funny it tells a lot about the expectations not of gender of course but also of the of classes and yes. what were mm. they what Class, were they doing rural urban absolutely yeah. and so she recounts it in that funny way I think actually it was part of a speech she might have been giving to show the impact of Siribon and the exhibitions they were doing. But uh, the men collaborated and they basically took, sold some of the stuff via that association in Beirut. 
And the point of the story is that apparently the year after, these men were sought the, such collaboration with Evelyn's and other women's association. Uh, they were very excited and looked for it because apparently it had sold well. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about it in terms of uh, the role of the city, the role of the, of the village, of the rural side, and the gender relations and the class relations in terms of how this works. And obviously something was changing and you can see it by the these men and the way Evelyn recounted, look what we did and look how it felt. Um, so I think that's interesting. And in terms of the women themselves, it's also noteworthy to reflect on the different roles that women did. And as such, again, I'm not saying something new, but when you look at it from not only an intimate perspective, but as part of a particular story and a bigger story that is rooted in this in this city, in this country, in this region, for example, how you become aware of you become more aware of the different classes. So Evelyn invested in that. She promoted it, and part of her work actually was to help women from lower classes to be able to contribute to their household. And with time, the artisana. But that, that's also why it's important to note that Evelyn was really at the. And why I say Evelyn, because eventually by the late 1930s, her cousin, Lodi Sirso Idde, who was the first lady, Lebanon's yeah. first lady, she was <coughs> recognized as having founded the Artisana. In fact, I think it was called l'artisan or l'artisana Libani. But in the official discourse since then, in the newspapers, there is no more talk about Evelyn and her endeavor with these crafts. And so my work uh, documents the work of Evelyn because it comes earlier and it is at the origin of all of this. She's the one who pulled all these threads. And there's a letter actually in the archives. I think it's a draft, but thanks to it, I was able to know because it's Evelyn who says that she did her part of the work and now other associations are taking over, meaning with mm -hmm. Lodi, etc. And so basically all of this to say there was that social aspect in the work. So women were trying to help other women, but also other men by investing in that class, in that group, in the nation. I guess that's what it means to have a nation also to be able to, to, to collaborate, to participate and for each to do their role. Um, and I'll say, I'll link this to my thesis in a moment because I think it's interesting. Um, but some of these really invested in the social aspect. And uh, I, Evelyn, with another uh, woman, um, developed a, an association to uh, help the rural um, areas in Lebanon. So I think that that happened in the 50s and 60s. And um, some of these archives are also available at the UB archives, but I haven't really delved into that because it comes even at mm -hmm. a later period. But there was the side of trying to salvage, promote and make it viable, sustainable, that economy that is not the capitalist economy, but the, the local economy that allows more people to be part of this of this nation state. Mm. So the connection I was trying to make with my with my dissertation is it relates actually to other associations, but these were very much dominated by men. With the Nahda, you had all these associations, industrial, scientific, yeah. literary, etc. And I've been working on these to try to understand their take on the crafts and how they try to promote the crafts, how they understood the idea of the crafts vis-a-vis -vis both uh, the industry and 
industrialization and fine arts because mm. craft actually comes at the crossroad of both. You can understand them in relation to both. And in these associations, in fact, the, the, the science, the Syrian Scientific Society and the Industrial Society of Beirut both addressed these issues. And in, um, in a couple of speeches that were given by Salim Kassab, uh, the, who I call the educator, and Shaheen Makarios, a journalist and Freemason, talking about Salim Kassab, for example, Shaheen Makarios and Khalil Shaul, together they give insight onto the society and they say they, they already look at society as different groups and different classes and the role of the patrons, who are not yet patrons, but the capable segments in society, the the notables, the importance for them to invest in, in the craft so that the poorer classes and the middle classes mm. can actually have something to invest in, something to work with. And as such, it's really interesting that and is that early where we're talking 1860s and then 1880s mm. these are the speeches I'm looking at how they're looking at a certain collaboration and solidarity within something that they call the nation for it to survive together and another one and I think here it's Shaheen Makarius who highlights the importance of associations and the both societies that I'm, I'm looking at Al-Jama'iyya Al-Almiya Suriya and the Industrial Society in Beirut uh, both of them were very short-lived. Mm-hmm. And then if we just fast forward 30, 40 years later, it's women who are at the heads of such endeavors, yeah. initiatives to do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It's still food for thought. It's basically what I'm thinking of and about and researching, but that's as much as I can give insight onto it. And perhaps just to end with going back to Evelyn, maybe to what extent did this ardent feminist writer, poet and activist attend to the role of gender as well as perhaps children in crafts production is a subject that I'm, I would like to learn more about and to work on. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been really fascinating to listen to you and I look forward to learning more about your research as you develop it. <laughs> so hopefully there'll be, I don't know, some publication coming out of this. Uh, uh, it's really wonderful and it's so rich opening up to so many questions also I was thinking the kind of connection from these very early associations to associations we know uh, of today I was thinking in particular also about Inish, uh, so working also with refugee communities in Lebanon in particular Palestinian and also now Syrian refugees but it's so interesting to see these connections so really the how Evelyn was very much already the name of the boutique shop right <laughs> Siriban it's very interesting to see these connections also with women as you said so the rural urban but also connections between Beirut and Cairo Beirut and Damascus yes I hope we'll have the chance to talk more and looking forward to learn more about this really fascinating research all right thank you very much thank you very much it was uh, lovely listening to you thank you this is a moving biography podcast bringing together different perspectives to question disciplinary assumptions and decenter life writing. It is a collaboration between Lauha at the Orient Institute Beirut, the American University of Beirut and the Global Decenter, generously funded by the Volkswagen Foundation.